Hello everybody, welcome to the Fire Science Show. Summer is rolling out slowly and warmly, but the Fire Science Show is not slowing down. Last week I took you on a trip to fire safety marine vessels. Today we're back on the land and we're touching an important subject of how changes in fire environment change the fire itself. And all of that based on an enormous collection of fire experiments, full-scale fire experiments, conducted by the Fire Safety Research Institute. My guest today is Dr. Craig Vaishing, who you may recall from a previous episode about the mission of FSRI. And today I, I talk with Craig about his experience in running multiple full-scale fire experiments, and especially on how the ventilation conditions in those experiments have influenced the outcomes of these fires. And this impact of ventilation includes openings, doors, windows, uh, establishing flow paths in your rooms, having stack effect, and also having wind uh, effects and, and other flow phenomena that can happen if your structure is of great volume. Uh, we also delve into the experiments with e-scooters, e-bikes as targets and as sources of fire. So if you're interested in this body, perhaps need to listen almost till the end of the episode, but I, I promise it's good, it's worth it. This is uh, as much fire science as it can be. And I really hope you will enjoy this one. So let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. My name is Wojciech Wingzinski and I will be your host. This podcast is brought to you in collaboration with OFR Consultants, a multi-award winning independent consultancy dedicated to addressing fire safety challenges. OFR is the UK's leading fire risk consultancy. Its globally established team has developed a reputation for preeminent fire engineering expertise with colleagues working across the world to help protect people, property and planet. In the UK, that includes the redevelopment of the Printworks building in Canada Water, one of the tallest residential buildings in Birmingham, as well as historic structures like the National Gallery, National History Museum and National Portrait Gallery in London. Internationally, his work ranges from Antarctic to the Atacama Desert in Chile and a number of projects in, across Africa. In 2023, OFR will grow its team and is keen to hear from industry professionals who want to collaborate on fire safety features this year. Get in touch at OFRconsultants.com. And now, back to the episode about ventilation and fires. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. I'm today with Craig Vaishink from uh, Fire Safety Research Institute. Hello, Craig. Great to see you. How's it going? Thanks for having me back. You're very welcome. You've invited me to a very secret stream of extremely interesting fire experiment. And if you think that uh, secretfully inviting me to witness a fire experiment is what gets you into the show, then you're gotten right. It actually does. <laughs> <laughs> but you've built my curiosity and we're going to discuss uh, those experiments, those recent experiments as well in the show. But I I've known you for years and I've studied your work for years and you've been uh, researching something that's very interesting for me, which is uh, smoke flows and how the smoke behaves in the fire. And as a smoke control engine, this is something very close to me, though you, you deal mostly with, with different types of structures than I do. So maybe let's start with why for so many years uh, at your time at NIST, now at uh, ULFSRI, what still um, gives you the ideas to, to research how flows behave in, in compartment settings? Where's the merit for, for this type of research? 
Certainly. Well, I'll, I'll start by saying that the next wave of this needs means you have to come out and, and do a fire science show live with us during our <laughs> experiments. Oh, man. You get the full experience, you know. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'll put the plug in for, for those listening. Uh, stay tuned. But we're going to work on something even more fun in the near future. You, uh, you know, it doesn't take much of convincing me to like, go and burn something down. Exactly. So, yeah, cool. Um, so, so, uh, to, to answer your question, you know, a lot of, a lot of this work is driven by the fire service. Okay. Uh, we've always had a strong working relationship with the fire service. Mm-hmm. And when we say with, we, we mean with, I mean, we've, we've always had technical panels. We have an advisory board made up of active, you know, and, and recently retired fire service professionals to make sure that the work we're doing is relevant to them. And as the fire environment continues to evolve with new construction, with, you know, new fuels, recognizing how their actions interact with that fire environment are important. Uh, so we've been, been doing this work, you know, going on a little over a decade now, at least for me, in terms of how do we understand what's, what's going on. And, and if you look back kind of the history of, we'll say, just what FSRI's work, you know, mm-hmm. we've been stacking kind of the complexity of experiments. And so originally it was, let's just look at ventilation. It's as much as we can isolate ventilation from everything else. Mm-hmm. What we'll do is we'll do a series of ventilation. The first is let's ventilate on plane. So it'll be horizontal ventilation. So same plane as the fire. And how does changing those ventilation tactics change the flows within the structure? By ventilation in here, you mean like openings, doors, windows, uh, stack effect, winds, this type of, not, not like Absolutely. powered. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so we started, you know, we started in the lab, so we, we didn't have wind um, and we we're doing single story structures. So we didn't have stack of stack concerns. And so let's start simply. Mm. Uh, and then what we'll do is we'll take windows, we'll take doors. And initially the, the windows were all like, we'll call plug windows. So we, we hardened them. They were things that we could repeatedly open or close at, at a fixed time. They were non-combustible. So it allowed us to just look at the true effect of changing openings Mm -hmm. structure. Then we got a little more complex and we said, well, now what if we vent off plane? So what if we start taking ceilings and roofs on single and multi-story structures? How does that start to change the fire behavior? And so we looked at all the different ventilation tactics when it comes to now horizontal and vertical ventilation. And we could see that as we change that vertical ventilation component, timing became critical. We can open that vertical vent, you know, it does get a little bit of relief, so to speak, for the firefighters because you drop the pressure locally because it's going to expand and, and travel vertically. However, you've created a really efficient flow path. And by this, okay. you've got, you know, mostly unidirectional exhaust through that vertical vent and then mostly unidirectional inlet through that corresponding horizontal ventilation. And so if you don't have suppression closely tied, you're, you're going to result in larger fire growth because basically made a chimney. I don't okay. know. But if we take advantage of that, that initial unidirectional intake, then firefighters now have a cleaner path towards the fire. They can leverage some of that to their advantage, but that, that tie window is fixed, uh, can be very, very short. People very, would very underestimate, and uh, I would also be within this group of people, under, we would underestimate the effects of the flow and ventilation on the fire on its own. You know, in our engineering, if you use design tools such as CFD simulations or zone models, you very often prescribe a very specific environment in your building in which the fire, the action is happening. And uh, very rarely you would connect the size, to how big the fire is with your ventilation because you, so you would go back to the concept of a design fire. 
which is related to occupancy, not related to ventilation conditions in that case, usually. And even if you did try to, to like uh, merge them, join them a bit, you would very rarely simulate any transient changes, you know. Perhaps you would if you simulate, let's say, a Jetfan system, because you have to start the system at some point. But that's your transient change. I start the system, that's it. But here, the window can break, the doors can be opened. You've used the phrase that there are actions in the fire response that changed it completely and understanding those actions. So can, can you give me like some sort of visual difference of, of really huge change in, in the fire dynamics or in fire behavior when the flow path has changed that, that justifies this type of research? Oh, absolutely. So as we moved forward and even just our own experiments in terms of complexity, when we moved out of the lab, we moved into acquired structures. So in 2018, 2019, we burned some acquired homes, some single family homes, single story, multi-story, uh, some garden apartments. So three story uh, within a closed interior stairwell and then also in a strip mall. Mm -hmm. um, so we burned somewhere, you know, I'll speak in English units, uh, apologize for, for, for being in feet, you know, units that are 60, 70 feet wide by 70, 80 feet deep. So very, very large structures. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating with all of these is each time we, we increase our scale, uh, the volatility or the response kind of also increases with it, right? And it's, it's not something we would, we would expect differently. Mm -hmm. um, but when we talk about it, it, it is still kind of, you know, interesting. When we did our strip mall units, we were in a, we'll say 50 by 70 square foot structure. And we had a front door open and we had eventually uh, 64 square feet of vertical ventilation. Mm -hmm. And when we popped that vertical ventilation, so simulating the firefighter tactic of, of vertical ventilation, in this scenario, it was uncoordinated. So we vented just to see what would happen, independent of suppression. And we had north of 30 miles an hour and 2000 degrees Fahrenheit coming out of that vertical vent. So you had uh, the strip mall, you had a fire that was like building up and yeah. then you suddenly start the venting action and then the fire accelerates to this type of velocities. This is something I would not have in my assumptions. I would probably go below eight, 10 miles per hour, uh, you know, yeah. for, for my inlet. I would not like to cross that boundary and 30 is definitely way above that. Yeah. So it's, it, you know, it's like they're performing this tactic to aid suppression. And so we, we need to recognize, you know, as we design structures, what is the structure supposed to handle too as part of, there is an emergency then in addition, you know, what, what is the fire department going to do when they arrive, especially in, the, in single family homes where life safety is the priority. So we saw in our search and rescue study, you know, we, we moved away from plug windows to real glass. So we were family windows. This was built basically like a real house. So we had full HVAC systems. And mm -hmm. now when you start taking windows, it's, hey, we're taking this window to potentially rescue an occupant. So we've got fire in a bedroom or we've got fire in a kitchen. We break those windows for entry to simulate firefighters going to search for occupants. What does that do in terms of changing the fire dynamics on, on a structure? So what might have been a single room fire in a, in a bedroom, now we've got a second low pressure vent across the hallway. And if they're not isolating that room, we're driving fire across the hall of a 1600 square foot house. In first flames at the window in 30 seconds and flash over and under 90, you know, in that second room ignited. But this is complicated um, fire dynamics. And I guess what you need to, to process that knowledge into is, uh, say, simple first considerations for firefighters to, to have some type of 
a decision process and perhaps also in a statistical way, you know, how often this happens or is it on average better to break a window or, or not? Absolutely. So, you know, when we talk about how we work with the fire service, when we're putting out outputs directed for the fire service, we we meet them where they are. So we generate what we call tactical considerations. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the outputs that help them make decisions on the fire ground. They're, they're not absolutes, they're recommendations, right? It's not you shall do this. It's you, you can consider this as an option uh, as part of many tactics you might consider as part of your, your fire response. And so when we talk about, you know, search and rescue and the study that's ongoing is, all right, we're, if we're going to break a window for entry to search for an occupant, what happens when we break that window in terms of the fire response? And then what can we do as firefighters to minimize those negative out, outcomes? And the first one is go and isolate that door. So if there is a bedroom door in place, close it because, mm-hmm. you know, shutting off that, you know, disconnecting that from the primary slow path, right? Being you're no longer in the exhaust portion of a flow path from, from that high pressure fire compartment. That does a tremendous amount of good for either keeping conditions as they were or actually sometimes improving them, especially if you've got now this local exterior ventilation, right? You just made this, this vent. Take advantage of that vent, close the door, and now your flow path is just that room. And you've got bi-directional flow at the window, your smoke layer is lifting, fresh air is coming in. And things are improving for you. Uh, when you don't take that, when you don't close that door, now we've got a low pressure exhaust uh, in a room full with volatile fuels. And so all of those hot fire gases coming out of the original fire compartment, you know, will continue to move down towards, towards that window. And you've got the heat, you've got the fuel, and now you've provided oxygen. And so we can, we, we've shown time and time again how, how that time window continues to shrink, especially when that vent location is, is closer and closer to the fire compartment. So basically, the actions must be complete. Otherwise, they, they perhaps create an environment that's that's more onerous than yes than what you had before, right? Exactly. And we've started looking at our tactics and our and our response and the data as relative to the point of our intervention. And so, as opposed to saying, "Oh, well, this is the total cumulative impact prior to their arrival," uh, what we found in in working with the fire service is we they just want to know, hey, if I perform action A or action B, which one's going to have a net positive impact? Because there's only so much we can tell about a fire scene from the outside. And mm-hmm. so we have to suppress the fire. We have to go in and occupy the space to determine if there are occupants, you know, if their shields under a bed or behind a closed bathroom door. There's multiple instances of that occurring, you know, kind of every month here in the States. How do we provide them the best possible information to make the safest decisions? And we've been preaching this, you know, fire safety message closed before you doze for a long time now hmm. of occupants are more likely to have a bedroom door closed. Well, then we need to make sure that our tactics reflect that, and give them the confidence that, you know, if you can identify that the door is closed from the outside, whether it's opening the window instead of taking it or just visually inspecting, hey, I've got hmm. high visibility when I look in this window and I can see the doors closed, that becomes a safe point to enter. And also a place of refuge, because if you search beyond that room, you can re-isolate it and keep that room disconnect, you know, from the high pressure sources. Uh, that's only part of the story. I mean, with some of the challenges now with, with, you know, HVAC systems, right? We've got this, this duct network of supplies and returns in the house. So how does that impact it? And yeah, we see some additional flow, but not significant. Eventually, mm-hmm. the, the pressure balances out. And then at the same time, you know, in the state, we see, you know, some HVAC systems will have supplies and returns. Um, some of them will have just a supply in the room and then what we call a transfer event. So a big, basically pass through event above the door 
and then a common return in a hallway or a living room. And so we've now started to run all of the different scenarios to reflect all of the different types. What if the supply is high versus low? What if the return is high versus low? Uh, all those different things are now being stacked to, to better understand the, the complexities of having would, a system. So in this case, would this go back to some design uh, recommendations or it still is for firefighters? I don't think firefighters can attack uh, HVC uh, channels in the building that much. But exactly. designer can, can point a cut of uh, damper inside and perhaps create an unpenetrable pathway, right? Yep. And so, so, you know, when we talked a couple of years ago now, I think, right, for, for our first episode, we talked about how FSRI was evolving from Firefighter Safety Research Institute to Fire Safety mm -hmm. Research Institute. So that's part of our larger mission is, yes, we're still at our core, you know, doing work with the fire service because at the end of the day, when fire happens, right, we're calling, we're calling them to come help. But if we could do things on the prevention side, on the building code side, on the standards side, that's part of our larger mission is, is all of fire safety. And so we're running these experiments and then we'll, we'll publish our papers like we, we do in either journal, you know, open accents or, or self-publish, especially when it comes to the fire service, to ensure that people have better information so that when these things are, are up for reviewing the building code and other standards, there's more data now uh, when it comes to fire. Because uh, oftentimes, right, fire is kind of the secondary or tertiary point in, in the conversation. Uh, unless we force our way through the door to say, hey, you know, we've got fire concerns here. And, uh, you know, we're trying to, to do that more and more is get our work out in all avenues uh, to ensure that we have a safe public and fire service that responds. Okay, so, so you've done so many of those experiments. I, I love talking to you because you have seen so many fires as controlled as possible space. I'm a designer. I have my building. I use a design fire in that building. Let's say I have a closed compartment in which I have my design fire. It, it starts burning. People escape. But I have this underpinning assumption that the doors to this compartment are self-closing. And what notoriously happens, in Poland at least, and I would envisage this happening all over the world, someone will block these doors because they annoy them to hell. And uh, in Poland, they usually block them with fire extinguishers to, to make it more interesting. Anyway, this person has, in their mind, just blocked the door. But from perspective of what we're touching in this talk, they perhaps changed the complete flow path behavior in a building. So let's say it's a compartment at some story of, of a larger building. How big that changes the, the fire behavior or the fire itself in, in this compartmentalized setting? Maybe you can give me some examples yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the door plays a tremendous role. Uh, mm -hmm. Doors are very efficient vents, being that we have no sill and, you know, pretty high soffit when it comes to, uh, at least in the residential compartment relative to the ceiling. So they're very good at exchanging fresh air in and combustion gases out. So it, it facilitates a lot of fire spread. So when we've done some, some experiments in kind of your typical residential compartment, so like 11 by 12, 11 by 15, mm -hmm. with windows closed, door closed, a lot of times that fire will self-extinguish. Even with an HVAC system, you might get okay. moldering if you've got the right ignition fuel. Um, but once that door's open, you know, that fire can now has access to all of that air, even if the rest of the building is closed. And so what we've seen then is now that fire is getting large enough that it can either self-vent the windows in the room, uh, which now, now allows you to have, you know, post-flash over fire because those windows are going to be more than enough to supply oxygen to that compartment. Mm 
Um, but we also get a lot of flame spread into the hallway. And so now we're spreading along our carpets and, you know, our carpets are very good at spreading fuel. They're, you know, synthetic, you know, plastic materials, basically. And so we get this flame spread either down the hallway towards other bedrooms or into this larger common space. And now if you were going to make entry to the structure for, as part of your fire support, right, your suppression actions, well, now you've got a fire that's meeting kind of where you are because it's traveled down that carpet and into the, into the next room. All it needs now is that additional burst of oxygen. So these, mm -hmm. these open doors facilitate a ton of flame spread. They also facilitate a ton of smoke movement. And so now, you know, when that door is closed initially, the rest of the rooms are pretty clean. I mean, you, you have some transport through the duct network if there's an HVAC system. Mm -hmm. um, but if that door is open, I mean, you'll start to see smoke. You know, the smoke layer will bank down to basically the floor of almost every room in the house. And we know that that smoke is filled with a lot of toxic gases. Uh, especially as we've transitioned to synthetics. And now if you have anything with, with a battery, you know, your room mm -hmm. might, might transition to post-flash over your cell phone battery, a laptop battery. Uh, who else, what else could it be, right? And like now that the combination of that toxic soup is, is far worse. And if you do go further and further underventilated, we know that there's a direct correlation with you know, toxicity and, and, and underventilation. So yeah, it, it, it's a compounding factor uh, when you've you know, less compartmentation. And that would be my common understanding from years ago that allowing the doors to be open is the main action would be letting smoke out. But I, I think the much harder concept to grasp is as much about letting the air in to, to allow the, the fire. And you've previously mentioned also the acceleration. Uh, to what extent this effect of acceleration is changing the fire scene? We've seen a change, you know, I first started doing this uh, the prevalence of, you know, sofas and chairs and beds that were constructed differently were more common. And so we had some what we call our grandmothers or great grandmothers sofas that were, you know, might still be cotton and you'd have, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And before that, that sofa gets fully involved and the velocity of the, the fire coming off of the, the smoke production is far less. You know, now everything is basically you know, polyurethane foam, polyester batting, um, polyester microfiber. Those things will transition in flame and produce flame heights that are much different. We've also now got a pool fire burning under the sofa as well. Mm -hmm. so we've got two factors simultaneously. And that drops your time to about three minutes or so uh, before that, that might flash over. And then what's, what's even, you know, more difficult to comprehend, you know, when you think about the timeline we have, is we, we recently wrapped up a series of like e-scooter experiments, like a small electric moped. And when those got going, you know, we went from smoke showing to peak heat release rate in about 19 seconds. Okay. And that's about 1.2 to 1.3 megawatts. And that's mm -hmm. also with, you know, a jet flame coming out now. So if you fail your ceiling, right, um, you also come with a little bit of a pressure wave from these gases get going. So about 0.2 PSI uh, over pressure. So you can break some windows, um, things like that. But if you start to fail your drywall or, or you've, you, you're living in an environment where some of your passive fire protection is already compromised, in addition to, you know, the rest of the things igniting because you've ejected cells, you've, you've, you've got this flame shard, you've got a jet flame that's probably 10, 8 to 10 feet high. And so you think about velocity in, in that aspect, right? Like, not only are we, sh we spreading fire faster, our actual outcome is a little bit of a jet fire coming off this bike. It peaks. And then while you might be able to handle that, that first wave from, from the kind of energy dissipation, 
the bike itself is filled with a whole bunch of plastics and foams. And so the bike can get a second peak of another 1.2 to 1.5 megawatts. So these things store anywhere between one to three megawatts energy in this really compact form factor. And our timeline is shrunk again. So we've got the velocity of we need to either isolate ourselves or evacuate the structure combined with just the straight fire behavior and fire dynamics aspect of this. So it's a twofold problem. But, but like imagine you, you have the same fire and you, you have the same fuel arrangement. And the only difference is, is your flow path. It, it exists in this way or in another way. In one, you have 10 miles per hour. In another one, you have 25 miles per hour. In inside you, of your flow path, love to like see to what extent this this flow path is really the defining element in the potential fire. I mean, think about it just from a convective heat transfer coefficient problem, okay. right? We go from from our, our natural to forced ventilation. Our H is going up potentially by an order of magnitude. Even if we're keeping that delta T the same, these higher velocity flows are just transferring that much more energy. The more energy we're transferring, we're failing things faster. Right now, imagine if you're you're a firefighter or an occupant. And even if we kept delta T the same and we put them in the exhaust portion of the flow path, right, their inability to survive that is it skyrockets because we can't, we're transferring energy so much more efficiently when we've got these high, high velocity flows. So all of these things are, are, we're talking ambient conditions, right? Now we add wind to the equation, as you kind of alluded to earlier, and your, your fire can generate between yours and a single story, single family residential environment, probably about five miles per hour worth of velocity just from, from fire growth. Now we add another five to 10 miles per hour from wind into this equation. And, you know, you've got a much more hazard, hazard situation way quicker than, than you probably anticipated. Now, to, to move forward, I'm going to be persistent on my engineering approach. Again, I, I design my spaces having a design fire in mind. Another thing that actually struck me when I was watching the streams that they, they sent me, um, you, you had a fire in some sort of a bedroom and uh, it's a uh, multi-compartment house, a corridor that connected to multiple rooms. You had a lot of cameras. And you've set a fire in a bedroom. It was like a nicely growing fire. I, I don't even remember. Was it was it armchair or was it the mattress itself? Yeah, just just an armchair immediately okay. adjacent to to the mattress. So, so it was technically a single item that was burning. Uh, it, it was quite a large fire on the camera. You could see like tall flames. You could eventually see the smoke going into the corridor, into adjacent rooms. Um, you could see some smoke layer going down in the corridor. Uh, that was interesting. I wouldn't say it was very dense, but you could see smoke. Now, eventually this room transitioned into a flashover. And from that point in time, it was ridiculous. Like in like, I don't know, 20, 30 seconds, the corridor was full of, of smoke. Not a smoke layer anymore. It was literally full of smoke. And you could see this layer, dense, black, uh, layer through which you cannot see within seconds going down. So, so this, this transition, like, of course, everyone knows a flashover is a brutal transition in fire dynamics. Of course, every fire engineer knows that the fire after flashover and before flashover will be two different animals. That's why we distinguish them by the fact if they went through flashover or not. But damn, this was intense. Like this, this transition was insane. And now if I, like take this knowledge, this observation into my project. And let's say I'm designing a, an office space anywhere. And my assumption is there's a one megawatt fire in there. 
which perhaps would be fiddling at the flashover limit of that compartment. And if flashover happened in that compartment, all my other assumptions of this design fire, they're pretty much worthless because the fire is so much different at that point. It, it is something that I, as an engineer, I mean, I understood it happens, but boy, you have to witness it to really appreciate this 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 transition. Absolutely. So, so what's interesting in, in the experiments that you've been watching, you know, we have real windows on all these structures, and so a lot of times when we see in changing literature now and and um, you know, some of the just the general communication is the ability to predict flashover. And in a fixed ventilation world, we kind of have a decent idea that we can start to model that, right? We've got some feedback, all these kind of things. But in, in our real world experiments, those windows start to crack and fail kind of an unknown time. It depends on, you know, whether were screens in place to start or were there no screens? Were mm-hmm. we single pane, dual pane windows, right? We've got a, a concurred study looking at that from kind of the, the wildland exposure from the outside in. All of that stuff plays a role. And so what we think could be a well-contained fire because, hey, we've only got a, a partial window open or, or something like that, it's kind of limiting our fire growth. As soon as we've got that change in behavior in the structure, right, that's, that's the window breaking or, or, say, the occupant escaping and leaving the door open, the transition of flashover goes from, yeah, we've got some fire on the bed or the mattress or, or this chair, and it's kind of contained there for two, three, four minutes. Um, but from window break to, to flashover then, right, we see probably within the next 15 to 20 seconds that take off. And it's hard to describe when you, when you, when you try to, to model that or to, to pull a design curve that, oh yeah, our heat release rate is going to go from maybe a couple hundred kilowatts to a couple megawatts mm-hmm. in 15 seconds. You're like, no way, that's not possible. That's, that doesn't seem right. Why would we you know, we, we have that, that historic fire growth curve, right? It's this nice, clean, yeah. you know, parabolic shape. And it, we've simplified it down to that. We see that in all the textbooks, especially when we first teach what an underventilated fire is in compartment fire dynamics. And that, that's all with this fixed ventilation kind of profile. But when we go underventilated prior to flashover, and now we've got this change in ventilation, uh, you know, this ventilation-induced flashover is much more volatile. And it happens, you know, we, we see it in the bedroom really quickly. You know, we, we flash over somewhere around five to five and a half minutes. But is that last 30 seconds that really takes off? Uh, I think you also saw a kitchen experiment. So yep. now we, we've gone from an 11 by 14 room to something that's probably, you know, 20, 40 by 30. It's an open floor plan kitchen living room. And so we ignite with a small, small pan of canola oil, uh, basically to simulate an unattended cooking fire. We let that reach its, its auto ignition temperature. So now we've got this kind of oil burning on a pan and we've got some adjacent bags of chips and paper towels and we've got a full kitchen. So cabinets and everything. Mm. But we're on the lean side when it comes to fuel in that kitchen. I mean, we've got some cups in the cabinets and stuff, but typical kitchen might have a lot more uh, fuel in the cabinets and things like that. Mm. And what's interesting there is, you know, the timeline, it follows a similar ish timeline, right? We've, we've got this slow growth for a long time especially getting those wood fuels going versus some of the polyurethanes in our bedroom. But we've got it contained to the kitchen probably 10 minutes after oil ignition, 12 minutes after oil ignition. We've got some flames that begin to roll the ceiling, uh, but it's still kind of a kitchen fire. I mean, we, we've set up the mm-hmm. smoke launch probably within 30 seconds of that that oil going yeah. uh, to ignition. And then we're, we're, we're still kind of a kitchen fire for quite some time. And then it goes from kitchen to living room to, you know, post flashover, that final minute again is, is, hey, we've either failed the kitchen window or 
you know, the top pane of one of the living room windows cracked and started to fail. And now we've got a little more ventilation and then we're off to the races. And it's that part is pre- predictable once we see that glass fail. But mm-hmm. the time to glass failures is not necessarily that repeatable. So that's the challenge when you're looking at your design curve is, okay, well, when is this going? When is this next piece, this next domino going to fall in this scenario? Because that's what we have to plan for is, is the unintended ventilation. Um, because that's going to happen at some point down the line is, is something else is going to fail in the system. I think you're touching on something very important in here for, for designers, because here we literally touch the boundaries of, of to what extent the design fire approach is even like usable. And as soon as some of those triggers are broken, uh, the design is no longer usable because if the size of the fire depends on the fact if the glass breaks or not, and if it happens in 17th or 19th minute on which we have no power over. And I also think in the design space, perhaps underestimate uh, the, the threats of very quickly developing fires, because if a fire can develop in two, three minutes in a confined space and reach a flashover state, at which it feels a corridor with smoke within literally 30 seconds. If this happens in a large floor of a complicated building, and I often would go to two offices as an example, um, if you put that on the timeline of a building, you know, how long does it take to detect? How long does it take for a fire alarm to pass? Because it's not just sensor detecting, it has to go through a control panel. There is a person that perhaps can uh, be obligated to to verify the fire or not. It is automated, but not immediately. It's yeah. not like the second you detect, the second people know. It takes time, sometimes minutes. If your timeline sh- shrinks to minutes and you have to add the uncertainty of egress process on top of that, you know, decision-making, the movement itself, you suddenly enter quite dangerous timeline because in your design fire scenario, when it is medium growth and you can... Uh, Keep it like that for a few minutes and then it slowly spreads the smoke. The fire does not spread, you perhaps are okay. But if in, in a scenario where your armchair is, is put against a cabinet with paper and you have some loose paper on your, on your desk and perhaps the window is slightly opened, fire dynamics of that compartment will be completely different than, than the ones that you could uh, assume. And, and this really scares the hell out of me. Yeah. And, and so the, the, the compliment to that, right, is, so we've, we've got on the design side and recognizing all these challenges and at the same time, that's why we do so much work with the fire service is so that they can recognize if they're going to create a ventilation opening as part of their suppression or search and rescue operations, what are the consequences of said action? And so if we've got two points to open, one near the fire, one far from the fire, recognizing that distance is buying them time for a negative, a potential negative outcome, right? It's if we can vent further, that allows us to get into that room to isolate it first, you know, because we might not be able to search past that living room kitchen that's on fire, right? If the rescue operations are, are getting there before the suppression, well, how do we get to those rooms? Well, we've got to get from the outside in. Uh, so the front door might may no longer be the natural point of entry. And so if we choose an alternate port, point of entry, recognizing what the consequences of that is. And if we break those windows and don't isolate, we're going to bring the fire down the hole towards that ventilation. There's more than enough fuel in any residential structure these days to facilitate that, that flame spread. And so we, we have consciously been working with the fire service for the last decade to kind of put all these pieces together, whether it's the suppression actions timing with ventilations, ventilation timing with search, search timing with suppression, so that 
all of these things can be independently recognized, but then also recognizes how the system operates together. And now let's put some variability on that with, with external conditions. I remember before you said the building on fire, you said that these are good conditions, let's burn it now. We, we have very low wind. So, so I assume in your, in your long career, uh, you, you've perhaps witnessed a lot of wind-driven fires in buildings. And I, I've read your papers with Dan about wind-driven fires. Uh, so now let's say we, we've done everything correct in, in your building design or the decisions are, are correct, but there's this external factor. How, how does that play in, in the grand equation of, of the fire in the compartment? As an experimentalist, uh, there's times when I absolutely hate wind because it, it has, you know, it's like, well, we want to make sure that, you know, if, we've, we're, if we're lighting this particular room on fire, we've got wind blowing into that potential vent, then it's going to change our entire experiment. We're counting on that vent being a low pressure exhaust. You know, wind will, will completely reroute those fire gases within the compartment. So what would be a natural bidirectional flow and potentially unidirectional exhaust, depending on where, what other vents might be open, the wind can turn that to unidirectional in, and that becomes a huge concern for us because it's a different scenario. Put that into the real world now, and you know, firefighters might be breaking that window, and they put firefighters in, in now what they thought would be the intake portion of of the flow path, and it's in the exhaust portion of the flow path. And we talked about earlier about velocity, right? Like now they're exposed to much higher convective uh, heat flux, which is really really bad for for them in, in the environment. Uh, we were doing an experiment a few months ago now, and uh, we had a living room fire with a you know open floor plan kitchen living room, and we had two windows on the kitchen side and two windows on the, the living room side, so they're, they're kind of connected but open floor plan. And right inside the front door, uh, which connected to the living room, we had a, a e scooter, so that that moped mm-hmm. uh, e bike, and we lit the sofa on fire. And the fire started to spread, and we got flash over in our living room, eventually our kitchen because of the Depends. But we had about 10 to 12 mile per hour wind coming from the kitchen side. So the living room side now becomes the low pressure exhaust and the kitchen's a high pressure supply. So we basically had unidirectional in on our kitchen windows. And when we ignited, eventually ignited this e-bike, we didn't even know we did it uh, visually. You know, our instrumentation told us, hey, this, this thing probably failed because the cell temperatures got up to a critical value. But we had so much fire coming out of our vents at such magnitude that we didn't know we set an e-bike on fire. And so that's what wind can do. You know, we had quite the wind-driven fire. And I mean, suppression became, okay, well, then we'll attack from that side and put water in that window and knock the whole thing down. Uh, in that regard, you know, we, we took advantage of the wind. But at the same time, like, that definitely changed our entire experiment. And fortunately for us, you know, it's an experiment. But now imagine that being someone's house or someone's mm-hmm. building. And you take that wind side vent and it's going to be much harder fire to control, especially if you can't get suppression where it needs to be. Uh, so it, it plays a huge role. And then at times it can play a much, much less noticeable aspect. So we were doing some in, in our search and rescue houses and uh, we had a slight wind, probably a couple miles per hour. And so you couldn't necessarily see it visually in the windows. So like, I mean, there's still enough pressure in the structure that we're having some exhaust, you know, come out, but early in fire group before that room kind of reached flashover, the wind played a role where we had much more fire in our hallway than we expected. Okay. So while it didn't necessarily meet the true conditions of a wind-driven fire in the sense that we, we had this well-defined change in gas flows within our flow path, 
it was subtle enough that those those gases that would normally have have flown out the the window because that was the the nearest vent to our ignition. You know, a lot of the it kept enough pressure at that window such that we had a lot more fire in the hallway. So when the firefighters came down to suppress the fire, you know, they turned the corner and the entire hallways flashed over. And they're like, "What happened? Why is this different than every other fire we had?" And so while, you know, as, as experiments, we obviously instrument the whole structure, but we also have weight sensors and, and, you know, weather stations up. So we could, we could actually see the, the wind change to the point where we had, you know, several mile an hour gusts and the gusts were enough, right? We didn't, you don't notice it in the time mm-hmm. because it's that because I've reached microscopic impact on the macroscopic mm-hmm. problem. And, uh, it was enough so that, you know, we, we started to break through our subfloor and things in the hallway. We were, you know, damaging some of the other doors because we, you know, the door directly across the, from the fire department was, was closed, but we actually started to burn it through because uh, we had so much more of a thermal insult in that hallway. And so when you, when we watched the videos back, you know, we, we have this good one that we need to release at some point side by side from the exterior. You have no idea the difference. Mm-hmm. And then we have the helmet cams and the interior cams, you know, for the suppression crew, they turn, you're like, these are drastically different fires inside. And so not only is it a problem for designers, right, in, in the fire protection community, but also for, for the responding firefighters is they might not know that that size up from the exterior tells them a lot, but it doesn't tell them everything. And uh, that was one of the more fascinating ones was that subtle. So we lined up, you know, here's, here's our wind. And then here's our heat flux in, in the floor in the hallway. And you can start to see, oh, yeah, there's this is why these two things are different. And then once it got going, the, the wind died down a little bit, but also there was enough fire in this interior hallway that the wind was no longer going to impact. It was just spreading uh, down the hall towards the other bedrooms and also towards our, our kitchen and living room. So we had a much different fire for, for one of those unknown exterior factors. I wouldn't say that designers are taking that into account. Uh, I, I think we would usually um, consider our buildings somehow safe from wind, especially if we talk about modern tall buildings. But then again, that there's this change in, in how buildings are being designed today because today you score additional points for having actually natural openings in your building. So if you want to have very high EAM or LEED uh, certificate for your building, you may actually have some sort of natural openings in your building, which can be randomly opened by the people inside your office. And what you've said here, you probably won't have a significant flow path, suddenly a stream, a jet stream of air in your, com- you, you might, if, if the wind is strong enough, but this little nudging of the fire towards like one direction or another can cause a very interesting outcome. You've also mentioned something that captured my attention. You said that you had a scooter. It was, you were not actually setting the scooter on fire. It was just there. And as I understood uh, from my interview with Adam Barovi, UL does a lot of these tests where the, the, the lithium-ion batteries or electronical devices would just be present in the fire to just see what happens to the fire scene by their presence. So not necessarily it serving as the trigger for the fire or the first item ignited, but just being there. So, so what, what are your experiences so far with these types of devices? To what extent it changes the, the outcomes? That's an interesting question. I've only done a few, so not, you know, relative mm-hmm. to the everything else in, in, that we've set on fire, at least me personally, I've only done a handful where the battery's been kind of the victim and not initiator. And for one, you know, when we had our wind-driven incident, it, it struck me so odd because came in, we looked like we would normally for any kind of fire patterns on the wall or the floor or anything that would indicate that, hey, this 
this ignited differently than, than everything else, or there's a pre flashover pattern, things like that. And there was nothing. Uh, granted, the wind driven case, you know, obviously magnifies all of that. And so we're, we're hopeful the next time we get to, to completely destroy a building that we can do it again. Because that, that was one of those ones where we learned a lot from the wind driven case, but we really wish it wasn't a wind driven experiment, but we were, we were locked in the timeline. So you kind of have to you know, go for it sometimes. Uh, when we've gone to some of the smaller batteries, it always depends. A lot of our experiments, we tend to go to a post flashover state. And so you don't necessarily see a lot of the impact because that fire is just overwhelming. Um, some of these things, but other colleagues have done more. So it's kind of out of my scope a little bit, uh, in terms of what I'm, what I'm usually setting on fire, or at least the fire sizes I've, I've been dealing with recently. And batteries as the first item ignited as, as your source, any experiences with that in residential settings? Yeah. So I've done probably now six or eight e-scooter experiments where we've initiated failure of the battery packs there. And what's fascinating to me is, you know, I, initially I thought it was going to be more repeatable. Okay. I thought, you know, we're going to fail this, whether it's an overcharge. So we removed the BMS from the equation and we're going to send it, you know, some current and voltage to allow this battery pack to go to thermal runaway. Uh, one, that the timing is so wide. Um, as mm -hmm. an experimentalist, it's very frustrating when you're like three and a half hours into overcharging this thing and you're still not getting ignition. But the failure mode is what was kind of fascinating to me is that sometimes we would get this kind of, the definition of an explosion is kind of always one of those, well, <laughs> which, which definition are we going to choose? But this overpressure event where we actually, you know, uh, broke some windows and doors where we had this kind of more uniform type, you know, fire behavior. And then there's times where we get this jet flame. Okay. And it just shoots a flame 8, 10, 12 feet straight up or straight out the side. And when it's straight up, it's not as hazardous, at least in my opinion, because you're going up to drywall ceilings and, and stuff and mm -hmm. it pulls the ceiling, but the fuel isn't there. When we failed it and shot it sideways, you know, we shot it straight into a couch. Okay. Um, and so that was like, okay, well, this is bad. And then we did some overheating experiments as well. So we just took like a pipe heater or a bucket heater and, and slapped it right on the side of the cells and overheated it that way. And sometimes we got this explosive type behavior and sometimes we got this jet flame. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of interesting when we, you know, started to look at that in terms of, well, how predictable really is this? Our time windows were all over the place as short as, you know, 30 minutes or even less in, in a couple of the overheating experiments to four and a half hours. And so when we talk about design aspects, right, is how do you control for that such large variability? Uh, when is the bike damaged? Is it brand new? What's the charging? When it, what all happened? That's kind of a little bit of a black box at the moment you know, in terms of the fire protection community. And so the type of hazard and the failure mechanism was, was all over the place in terms of then what it did to the rest of the structure. I mean, we broke some walls, we broke some windows, we broke doors. And then we did run some experiments with a sprinkler system um, that had some very encouraging, very positive results. And so we're currently writing that up um, from both the fire spread side and the toxicity side. So Hopefully you should have that paper done by the end of the year to share with everyone in terms of uh, what that looks like with a residential, you know, 13D system uh, and some of these electric vehicles inside. So, or electric scooters, right? The e-mobility type stuff. That's exciting. Uh, not yet ready to share it because there's still some some stuff we need to analyze from, from the inside. Craig, to close the episode, we, we've been, I, I think the theme of the episode could be the variability of, of fires. And you've seen my guess would be north of a few hundred uh, fires in, in your life. 
do they still uh, surprise you? Like, how is it in the eyes of someone who burns so much? Absolutely. You know, burn days are the best days. Um, what's difficult these days is as as you get older, the rehab days, the instrumentation days, uh, you feel mm -hmm. a little bit more each time. Uh, <laughs> but it, it's still fascinating. I mean, the fire environment continues to change. We're continuing to push boundaries. I mean, when we did our, our strip mall experiments, those still strike me as some of the most exciting uh, experiments we've ever done, at least me personally. I mean, we when we had a double wide unit that was like about 70 by 80, or maybe it was even 80 by, by a little bit larger, we were using like group A plastic uh, commodity boxes. So 125 polystyrene cups and cardboard boxes. We had them stacked, I think, four high and, mm -hmm. and I treated them almost like aisles like you would see in a typical like uh, strip mall type occupancy. And we ignited in the far corner from the open front door. And we started to get fire spread across these boxes. And so we went from, you know, kind of one group to the next group. So we had a little bit of a pain hunting definition. I might, you know, Some of the audience might not agree with a traveling fire, so to speak, but we had this flame front moving and we had temperatures, you know, in these local localized areas that were, you know, floor to ceiling 1100 degrees Celsius. So mm. whether you call that, you know, flashover or not, uh, I had a good conversation with Guillermo recently about that, but we had this flame front move across. And what was so wild to me is that we put, we basically had a unidirectional exhaust flow at this front door this entire time. So okay. smoke was, was shooting out. Um, like a jet uh, 75 feet from the front door uh, while the door was unidirectional exhaust as this fire is building because with the open floor plan strip mall unit, there's more than enough oxygen to support this fire before it actually started to come truly underventilated. So the flame front moves to the front door. And as soon as it gets to the front door, the exhaust stops or you get a nice bi-directional flow and it looks like anything you'd ever see before. So this, you know, if, you're, if your fire department's arriving three, four, five minutes afterwards, they can arrive as we've got this unidirectional smoke coming out, thinking that we've got a smoke explosion going on or some other effect when it's, it's really just fire dynamics in these large volumes. Could combine with the very specific fuel that you had because yeah. that's a very, uh, let's say, dangerous type of commodity that you had. Exactly. There, there's a really fascinating case in New York, and I think it's in Troy, New York, the Alpha Lane bowling alley. If you ever get a chance to look up that video, a ton of smoke coming out of the bowling alley And then all of a sudden it ignites off as a unidirectional exhaust, basically all self-driven. Um, and we've seen these kind of things happen more and more recently with these larger volume structures and these highly volatile fuels and they're fire dynamics driven, not necessarily okay. where, you know, we're taking windows, changing the ventilation pattern, things like that. It's purely, hey, we've got this large volume that can support this large fire growth. Um, so we're going to be doing some townhouse fires in the next few years. Um, looking at now, what does it look like when you have three stories stacked with an open stairwell? Can you replicate some of this behavior in a residential fire ground? Uh, we saw it somewhat in some of our fire investigation work where we had a kind of a two-story great room um, where we could get this unidirectional exhaust out the front door. And so that's still one of those fire dynamics things that's fascinating to me that that's still kind of, you know, I'm very interested to continue to see. And then as we go to this building to building fire spread stuff, you know, looking at the different glass types, whether we, you know, the ordering of the panes and how that works and how the different gases between the panes all play a role. 
but we get the best glass in the world. But if we don't have the proper frames, we don't have the proper siding, it's, it's this fire protection system that is still so fascinating to me and how all of these pieces and how we can uh, identify some of these things by by looking at the full scale. Um, you know, we've done a lot of small scale stuff. We have a materials database now with over 70 materials for their ignition properties. And, you know, we're, we're going to be adding their kinetics now. We've got thermal conductivity and density and, and all that stuff. And it's wonderful for a fire modeling perspective, right? How can we start to improve our baseline capabilities? But sometimes you don't necessarily see all of the challenges until you burn it to full scale and see, oh, wow, here's this big flaw in the system that we didn't consider because all these systems are developed by people with different expertise. And once one put together, it's, it's kind of like, oh, we didn't think about that one. So for me, that that part never gets old, and it's still fun setting big things on fire. And uh, I I hope uh, with your research we will have less and less moments of ah oh, we didn't think about that. I hope we eventually will have that as a very rare occurrence, and yep. that would be hopefully a nice a nice world. Um, Craig, there's a lot of resources from your group where people should seek them because we've. Okay, people, we've talked about some interesting fire experiments, interesting fire dynamics, flow paths and everything. It's, it's sometimes very difficult to imagine that and understand. But there are videos, there's materials, there are online courses produced by FSRI that you can go and see in details, slow paced, what actually happened and what's the learning from that particular fire. And what, where should people go to find those? So the first, uh, our LMS, so the Fire Safety Academy, that's our free free online training. And that's at training.fsri.org. And the latest course we just put out is on this search and rescue study. Um, mm-hmm. So we had run 21 experiments a couple of years ago. What we're doing is, is kind of running 10 more to fill in some gap. But the course is really cool because we've incorporated a lot, a lot of our video, uh, a lot of the data kind of in a very interactive way that we haven't done before. And we also have a lot of our tech panel members as part of the course. So you can hear from the firefighters that are responding to this, to these scenarios, what they feel and how they interpret uh, our results. So training.fsri.org. And then on the other scale of things, um, a plug for our, our materials database, materials.fsri.org has a wealth of information about how all of these materials burn at the small scale to medium scale. So everything from an MCC to a cone. And then soon we'll be adding a lot of our full scale data as well. So that's going to be a home for, for lots of material properties. When we think about why, why this cabinet burns different than that, than that chair or that sofa, we can look at those material properties now and see first class what that looks like. All in open access. Yes. Everything's free. Everything's absolutely free and open source. So the database is cool because we have the front end um, that you guys can interact with, with um, interactive graphs and, and tables, but then all of the data is available on GitHub. Um, so you can go to the ULFSRI GitHub and see a handful of experimental data sets that are open, including uh, the materials database. Fantastic. Craig, that, that was a pleasure as usual. And uh, hope to have you here again. This time, perhaps talking about your super secret project with not not touched at all in the years. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, anytime, I'm always happy to chat. And, and like we said at the start of the call, next time you got to come to our house and uh, oh, yeah, I'm looking do uh, one of these uh, lives. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to do that. That's fantastic. And that's it. Thank you for listening. I must tell you, we were a little stressed with uh, Craig because describing uh, fire experiments when you only have voice and you have no visual component is, is sometimes a challenge. 
But as I listen to this, I, I hope we've done a good job providing you a voice illustration of what changing the flow paths and flows in buildings cause to, to the fires. And uh, the impact is immense, especially when Craig mentioned this, some would say, non-important impact of, of slow wind that was literally just nudging the fire towards one opening versus another. But that was enough to change the, the complete fire physics in the compartment. So, well, this, this impacts may be considerable. If you would like some visual cues, Craig just listed a lot of interesting resources provided by FSRI. And this includes a lot of videos from their experiments as well. So you probably would like to check that out because that database is, is literally goldmine for any fire safety engineer. So I absolutely recommend you checking out these resources. And for today's talk, uh, yeah, that would be it. Thank you very much for being here with me this Wednesday. And the next Wednesday, I see you here once again. Thank you. Bye. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.